Today is Saturday, July 24, 2021. On this day in 1970, the trial of notorious cult leader Charles Manson began in Los Angeles. Manson, along with three female co-defendants, stood accused of one of the most brutal murder sprees of the century. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Today we're covering the opening day of Charles Manson's trial and the vicious legacy that he and his followers left behind. Now let's go back to a sweltering morning in Los Angeles on July 24, 1970. The city and the entire nation had been waiting with feverish anticipation for the proceedings to kick off. The public hoped that cult leader Charles Manson and his followers would finally face justice. Almost a year earlier, in August of 1969, members of the Manson family had executed a murder spree so grisly that it had stunned the world. Over the course of two nights, they'd murdered seven people, including the pregnant actress Sharon Tate. As Judge Charles H. Older called the court to order, a silence fell over the crowded room. Everyone held their breath, awaiting the appearance of the man himself. When he finally entered, Manson didn't waste the opportunity to seize the spotlight. Manson strolled into the courtroom, sporting his signature long hair, a beard, and a bloody X carved into his forehead. The wound was clearly fresh, drawing gasps from the assembled crowd. In a statement shared by his attorney, the killer explained his razor blade tattoo. Manson said, You have created the monster. I am not of you, from you, nor do I condone your wars or your unjust attitudes towards things, animals, and people that you won't try to understand. I have exed myself from your world. It was a characteristically rambling, self-important statement from a man who clearly had no remorse for his horrific crimes. It was also a harbinger of things to come. Throughout the next 22 weeks, Manson and his followers would be so disruptive that Judge Older repeatedly had them removed from the courtroom. Beside Manson were his three female co-defendants, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Denise Atkins, and Leslie Van Houten. The trio had carried out the murders alongside a handful of other acolytes. In his opening statement, Deputy District Attorney Vincent T. Bugliosi described Manson as a megalomaniac with an insatiable lust for power and violence. 
As he laid out the state's case, Bugliosi noted how Manson had used the image of a peace-loving hippie to disguise his murderous intent. He also touched on Manson's possible motives for ordering the murders. He suggested that the cult leader was driven by an obsession with a race war between white people and black people in the United States. Bugliosi said Manson tried to make the murders look as though they'd been carried out by black perpetrators. By doing this, he hoped to spark the war he was so fixated on. In Manson's mind, Bugliosi said, his family, and particularly he, would be the ultimate beneficiaries of the black-white civil war. By the time court was adjourned for the day, there were still far more questions than answers about the Manson family's bizarre beliefs and despicable violence. Coming up, we'll discuss the senseless crimes that define Manson's legacy. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. On July 24, 1970, the trial of Charles Manson and his followers began. Manson and three of his acolytes stood accused of planning and executing the murders of seven people the previous year. The killing spree had stunned the city of Los Angeles. On the night of August 8, 1969, four Manson followers, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Linda Kasabian, and Tex Watson, set out from the cult's rural headquarters on a terrible mission. They drove up into the winding hills of Benedict Canyon and broke into the home of director Roman Polanski. Acting on Manson's orders, the posse murdered five people at the house, including actress Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, and Stephen Parent. In a horrific final flourish, the murderers painted the word pig on the door of the house using Tate's blood. Manson's motivation for targeting these victims specifically has never been confirmed, Per one theory, Manson had a grudge against the home's last owner, music producer Terry Melcher. The previous year, Melcher had declined to make a record with Manson, enraging the egotistical cult leader. 
The following night, Manson himself drove six of his followers to a property in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, where they murdered grocery store owner Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. Again, the LaBiancas were not targeted, and Manson's motivations for choosing their home are murky. But as the prosecution noted, Manson's obsession with a race war, which he called Helter Skelter, appeared to be at the root of his sadistic killings. Manson was a racist. His vision for Helter Skelter was really a white supremacist fantasy in which a conflict between white and black people would make it possible for him to seize power. In Manson's warped and bigoted vision of the future, he and his followers would go underground during the war itself. Once the smoke cleared, he believed there would be a window left for him to suddenly emerge and take over. The murders were in part Manson's attempt to jumpstart the race war. He and his followers staged both crime scenes to make them look like they were committed by the Black Panthers, a group Manson loathed. But he was also trying to use these flashy, gruesome killings to distract from other crimes he and his followers had committed, including the July 1969 murder of Gary Hinman. Regardless of Manson and his family's convoluted motivations, their killing spree was a defining moment in the nation's history. The fact that his followers were mostly well-off, middle-class teenagers was especially compelling and disturbing to average Americans. The murders sparked widespread fear about the occult and its corrupting influence on the youth, which contributed to the rise of the satanic panic during the 1970s. Even though Manson and his followers were jailed for life when their trial wrapped up, the damage they'd done could never be reversed. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. If you'd like to learn more about Charles Manson, listen to our episodes of Cults on the Manson Family. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskin, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Emma Dibdin, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, and fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 